0: Hey everyone, welcome to Lever Time, the flagship podcast of The Lever, which is an independent reader-supported news outlet. I'm your host, David Sirota. On today's show got a really busy show. I'm going to be talking about The Lever and ProPublica's follow-up reporting on that billionaire Barry Side, the reclusive Chicago funder who made national headlines a few weeks ago for making the largest known political advocacy donation in American history, $1.6 billion. We're going to be diving into more details on who Side is and what his mission is. Then, This week kicked off another NFL season, so I'm gonna be speaking with political sports writer Dave Zirin about his new documentary, which looks at how the NFL has become a political weapon. Listen, you may hate sports, but if you care about politics at all, You should pay attention to how sports influences literally every part of our politics and our culture. This week, also, our paid subscribers will get a great bonus segment. My conversation with the former spokesman for British labor leader Jeremy Corbyn, who answers all of my really dumb American questions about the royal family. The passing of Queen Elizabeth, and why Britain and its monarchy still pretend it's Westeros in Game of Thrones. If you want access to Levertime Premium. You can head over right now to LeverNews.com to become a supporting subscriber. That gives you access to all of our premium content and you'll be directly supporting the investigative journalism that we do here at The Lever. As always, I am joined by producer Frank. What's up, Frank?
1: Not much, David. Very excited for the show today. Uh, I watched uh, Dave's documentary on the NFL and and, uh, full disclosure, I am not a sports fan. I do not care for sports, but I really enjoyed this documentary.
0: I feel like you were dreaded having to watch a documentary about the NFL like when i told you we're going to have dave on the sort of i could there was kind of a sigh kind of a like a oh god sports but but i told you right i mean like you can't understand american culture and politics if you don't understand some of the most important cultural and political weapons in our society, the NFL being one of them,
1: yeah, I did not get it when you pitched it. you're like, we're going to talk about the NFL. I was like, <laughs> David, we do a politics podcast. I don't understand, uh, but no it's it's a it's a very political documentary and and Dave did a really, really great job on it.
0: Did you take in any uh, any NFL games this weekend?
1: No, like I said, I do not watch sports, uh, I do not care for them, and which is great because I have a ton of free time. <laughs>
0: I, I'm, I'm constantly, people look at me when I around town here in Denver. If, you, if they ask, hey, did you watch the game? I, I don't usually watch the Broncos games, but this is such a huge football town. I mean, I, and I grew up in Philadelphia, which is also a huge football town. The Eagles, the Broncos, I, it, it, kind of people's fandom about sports in the two towns that I've, I've lived in. Uh, it's like nobody cares about the other sports really at all. It's all football all the time. And so uh, I was psyched to watch Dave's documentary over the weekend as well well. So that's coming up later on in the show. But first, we're going to take a deep dive back to a story we told you about a couple weeks ago, the story about the largest known political donation in American history. Just a reminder, three weeks ago, the Lever and ProPublica broke the story of that donation, $1.6 billion, a secret donation. We broke the story of how that money was gifted to a trust run by Leonard Leo, the man arguably the most responsible for packing the Supreme Court with right-wing extremists and overturning Roe v. Wade. For those who haven't heard this story, Leonard Leo, one of the most influential people in all of American politics. He's the co-chair of the Federalist Society. He was Donald Trump's top judicial advisor. He was directly responsible for the nominations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, as well as having played a role uh, in the confirmations of Sam Alito and John Roberts. I mean, this truly is the man behind the curtain. But where does his new mountain of money come from? The donation came from a reclusive, ultra-conservative billionaire from Chicago that almost nobody has heard of, a guy named Barry Side. He was the owner of a very lucrative electronics company called TripLite. You may have a TripLite surge protector in your home. Through some very complex financial maneuvers, Side transferred ownership of his whole company, TripLite, into a secretive nonprofit organization run by Leonard Leo, which then sold the company. This handed Leo a $1.6 billion political war chest while effectively allowing Side to avoid up to $400 million in taxes that he might have had to pay had he not used that maneuver. This past week, the Levers' Andrew Perez and ProPublica's Andy Kroll and Justin Elliott, that team that broke the original story, published a big follow-up story detailing Barry Side's history as one of the most prolific conservative political donors in American history, a guy who's funded, for instance, one of the big groups that has promoted climate denialism. We're now going to go to my conversation with Andrew Perez and Andy Kroll to get the details on exactly who this big donor is. Hey, Andy. Hey, Andrew. Hello. Hey there. So you guys did some follow-up reporting on the big story that was originally broken by uh, The Lever, ProPublica uh, and The New York Times, the story about the billionaire, the very reclusive billionaire who secretly transferred a $1.6 billion gift into the dark money group of Leonard Leo, uh, the right wing operative who has been focused on taking over. Uh, The court system shifting it to the right. Now, there's some new reporting about this billionaire. The next piece uh, that you published last week was about who this billionaire is and what else he has funded. So let's just start with that. What did we learn new about what this billionaire uh, has also been funding alongside now making this donation to this uh, new right-wing dark money group?
2: The biggest thing I would say we learned was Barry Side's role in funding the decades-long effort to undermine, cast out, deny the increasingly overwhelming science of climate change. Our new reporting included a revelation, I would say, that side has been the main funder. I believe the direct quote from a former advisor of sides the quote unquote, the major patron of an outfit called the Heartland Institute, which is based in the Midwest. The Heartland Institute is a longtime uh, foe of mainstream climate science. Uh, some listeners might remember the Heartland Institute for some of its more aggressive tactics, including paying for billboards that had the face of Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber on them, and likening the Unabomber to people who believe in climate science, people, scientists who are researching and publishing on climate science. I mean, these are the kind of tactics that the Heartland Institute is known for. There's a sort of bombast to what they do, and we didn't know until this story from the Leonard Pro Publica that Barry Side, this ultra-secretive billionaire, has been funding, really significantly funding the Heartland Institute for years, if not decades at this point.
0: And we also learned uh, about this relationship with uh, Side and one of what's become one of the beating hearts of the conservative legal movement andrew why don't you tell us uh, about that
1: yeah um so you know we obtained emails um that you know appear to confirm that um that side was this anonymous donor who gave 20 million dollars to uh, george mason university as part of a, a gift coordinated by leonard leo um, to pay for the school to rename its law school after uh, Antonin scalia the late supreme court justice you know, and, and you know, there, there's been some reporting on this for some time, but um, th- these emails, um, you know, kind of go further than what we'd seen before. And um, that, you know, the, the emails literally show the, the GMU law school dean thanking side for his generous support um, and in specifically saying that they had uh, received made a lot of progress since the naming gift and um, explaining that it, it had inspired like another like $50 million donation down the road, um, you know, they, they kind of these emails indicate that side had a pretty uh, you know breezy um, um, ongoing relationship with uh, GMU professors as well, specifically Frank Buckley, who is known for uh, writing uh, Donald Donald Trump Jr.'s Donald Trump Jr.'s convention speeches in twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, um, and and he he also had to delete his. Buckley had to delete his Twitter account this year for um, (laughs) for calling Sonia Sotomayor, the Supreme Court Justice, a a stupid Latina, I believe was his phrase. Um, Yeah, it's pretty, pretty uh, hideous stuff. and, and this is the guy, you know, these emails showing sides saying that uh, that Buckley had to be had to keep being a, a a public intellectual in the U.S. just just two years earlier. Now, some folks might be listening to this and thinking, "Look,
0: there's been a lot of reporting about the Kochs, a lot of reporting about uh, Peter Thiel, a lot of reporting about uh, Bill Gates. I mean, George Soros. You name the billionaire. Uh, Barry Side. There hasn't been much reporting at all. He just has not." been on the radar. Um, Andy, in this story, you dive into how Side has tried to keep himself off the radar, how obsessed it seems that he is with being anonymous. Just talk to us a little bit about that and how that, I guess, distinguishes him from other billionaire funders of politics, right? I mean, there are these, this kind of Mount Rushmore of billionaire funders of politics who everyone knows. And then there's Barry Side who like nobody knows.
2: Yeah, if I were, if I were going with the, the Mount Rushmore, Mount Rushmore metaphor, I would say that in that case, Barry Side would be the guy who would pay for the construction of that billionaire Mount Rushmore so long as you did not put his face on it or his name anywhere near it. We talked to a number of people who've known Barryside for years, if not decades. One of them is a conservative activist named Stephen Baer, who has sort of popped up in interesting ways over the years, curious ways over the years in conservative politics. Steve Baer met Barryside when Barryside was just beginning to become a very wealthy man. When Sides company Triplite, which is this electronics manufacturer, was taking off in the 1980s even back then as Barryside was tiptoeing into the world of political donations activism nonprofit giving you name it Barryside was adamant that his name stay under the radar that he remained as anonymous as possible we quote Steve Bear saying that He would come to Barry's side and say, I want you to come to this event with William F. Buckley or Robert Bork or some other conservative big name. Inside would reply, I will pay you to not have to go to your event. I will (laughs) give you a donation just so that I don't have to go, which, of course, is the opposite of a lot of high roller political donors, Democratic and Republican. They want to be on the photo line. They want that picture with the principle that they could put up on their wall and show their friends 100% the opposite for Barry Side. We also quote from an email that Barry Side himself wrote that we obtained through public records requests, where he describes his approach as anonymity paranoia, direct quote from Barry Side. There is a reason that people have not heard of him as compared to the Cokes, as compared to the Scafes and the Melons and the, Bradley's and the DeVos family. Those families have their own paranoia. And a lot of them, including the Cokes, tried to stay under the radar. But Barry Side was far more obsessed with staying anonymous, remaining secret than even any of these other massive oligarch families.
0: Now, the relationship between Side and, and Leonard Leo, uh, we don't know a lot about it. We don't know how exactly how it started. We don't know, uh, um, uh, uh, how it developed. One thing that does seem clear is that Barryside seems motivated by a kind of Chicago school libertarian economic agenda. And Leonard Leo is the, has been known as a, uh, focused more on, on cultural conservatism. Um, uh, he's been reported to be a, a conservative catholic is what he's always referred to in 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 media and so in a sense this kind of seems like kind of the metaphorical marriage of the republican coalition in in miniature or i guess maybe it's not so miniature and it's billions of dollars point being a libertarian economic uh uh funder Married up with, politically married up with, a cultural conservative leader. Uh, Andrew, I, I just talk a little bit about how powerful that alliance can be because if it all ends up focused on the Supreme Court, the Supreme or, or much of it does, the Supreme Court is focusing on both of those sets of issues, even though I think in the public consciousness, the the public consciousness is that the Supreme Court only operates uh, on sort of high profile, quote unquote, social issues. When, in fact, the court is actually operating just as much, if not more, on the economic issues that Barry's side seems to care most about.
1: Yeah, no, I th- I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I do think Leonard Leo is, you know, obviously like a, a hardline conservative Catholic um, and, and anti-abortion activist. But, I mean, his organizations have definitely also, you know, pushed um, de- the, like a deregulatory agenda um, you know they they're financing the Republican AGs the attorneys general who are bringing so many of these cases before the court seeking to strip out you know environmental regulations in addition to um uh, you know protections for abortion rights uh, but you know we it, it's our understanding through um, you know through some of these interviews that that side is not really concerned so much with social issues that he sees himself as a libertarian um, but uh you know I think I think the way it was described to us is that he's like sort of, uh, you know, believes in coalitional politics and, you know, basically knows like this is where the conservative movement is. Right. It's not just the the economics. It's it's very much the the conservative on social issues, too. So um, but, you know, the other thing is, I mean, he's giving his money to one of the most successful, um, just, you know, objectively successful uh, Republican political operatives we've seen um, in, in our lifetimes. Like Leonard Leo has has built a a staggering dark money network before, um, well, God knows when Barry Sides started giving him money, but before before this one point six billion dollar donation. So I guess the final
0: question on all of these revelations is: To what end do these revelations matter? I I understand that that's like a kind of an existential question about journalism and what what we do, but I think I will ask you. Andy, as somebody who's reported on this, I mean, it's an extraordinary story in the sense of the size of the donation, the secrecy surrounding it. But I do feel like there will be people who will listen to this and say, oh, well, well what you're telling me is, is that a right wing billionaire is behaving like a right wing billionaire. Uh, tell me something. Uh, tell me something that I don't already know, uh, at least um, uh, in general, in, in the abstract. I mean, I, without asking you to speculate, just as a reporter, having dug out this story what do you think the readers take away from this reporting uh should be could be what do you think it uh, spotlights and illustrates um that we didn't previously know uh, beyond the details of the specific donation
2: i think the best way to to answer that the 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 most important thing that readers and listeners can take away is actually a point that i think answers the question. That you just asked Andrew how does this alliance work between this you know reclusive conservative slash libertarian billionaire who really doesn't seem to be that concerned with quote-unquote social issues and this very social issue driven activist in Leonard Leo and I've been thinking about this a lot I hope it's something that we can incorporate in future stories There's a judicial philosophy that these two men clearly agree on, given what all the work Leonard Leo has done and all the money Barry Side has given. And it's this notion of originalism, textualism, that the U.S. Constitution should be interpreted in the year 2022 as the framers absolutely intended it when they wrote it hundreds of years ago. And there should not be any notion of living rights. It's a living document. That is what connects these two. And that is where, what this money is flowing into. Because it's one thing to say, we've uncovered this donation. Here's who gave it. Here's who got it. Here's what one thinks. Here's what the other thinks, what one's done, what the other's done. But of course, everyone wants to know to what end? What does this money go toward? What is it funding? and we can talk about groups we can talk about elections we can talk about uh, uh you know policies courts but this judicial philosophy of originalism is the foundation for all of this it is the water in which everyone in this world is swimming around in and that philosophy gets applied to everything not just economics government regulation uh the economy the climate but also marriage equality um, basic fundamental social issues that we have in this country, racial equality. You could go on and on and on. We got a taste of this in Clarence Thomas's recent uh, opinion in this most recent session, where he kind of cracked open the door to revisiting, for instance, the Obergefell decision that made marriage equality, the law of the land. That. Shared judicial philosophy, I think, is what people need to understand. That is what's really at stake in this story, something we're going to keep reporting on. But the stakes here are huge, and now the money is huge. And that's why this is such an, an unbelievably important story for right now and going forward.
0: Andrew, just to follow on that thought, your, your final thought on without giving away um, – what else uh, we're going to be reporting on. But where do you expect to see, as somebody who's covered money in politics for so long, where do you expect to see a lot of this money now deployed? I don't mean specific races. I mean, what kinds of venues in the political arena do you expect to see this money deployed in?
1: Yeah, well, so we know, you know, if you look at the court system, we know it's been being used to, help um place people on these courts it, it's also you know helping fund their caseload like bringing uh bringing you know cases before the the court the supreme court and lower courts too designed to overturn established precedent designed to limit regulations designed to challenge you know what what many people might consider their their fundamental uh you know constitutional rights um so that's one thing you know i think you know, now that this this group overturned, um, that that the Leo Network effectively overturned um, Roe v. Wade and, and and constitutional protections for abortion rights. You know, I think I think you should expect to see these groups um, funneling some money into um, into abortion fights around the country. And you know, I'll just give one example, um, just that we've we've seen in some of our reporting already. Um, um, so the. You know, there were these misleading um, text messages that went out in Kansas um, it, it involved uh, as part of this, um, you know, ab- abortion ballot measure. Um, the, the ballot measure was designed to strip uh, Kansans of their of their constitutional protections for abortion. Um, you know, that these text messages went out from this group called Catholic Vote, um, which is you know, has been funded in the past by the Leo network to some degree, you know, small amounts here and there, you know, would not be shocking to to learn a few years down the road that, that his network is paying for all of that. It just, you know, it makes, it makes too much sense. And I think that's the kind of stuff we're going to be seeing uh, d- down the road. Thanks to both of you
0: for your reporting. And thank you. I should add, thank you for staying on the story. I think sometimes these stories, they happen, they pop once they go away. We are working, uh, and I know – I mean, we at The Lever, you at ProPublica, Andy, we know that we're not going to let go of this story. We're going to try to report out as much as possible, and I want to thank you f- for for being willing to do that because, look, we live in a kind of a, a, a an attention deficit uh, media environment where things happen and then they go away. Th- this is something so big that it can't just go away. So thanks to you for your reporting and for staying on the story. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, David. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with my interview with Dave Zirin about his new documentary about the politics of the NFL. Welcome back to Lever Time. For our big interview today, I'm going to be speaking with political sports writer Dave Zirin. Dave is the sports editor for The Nation and he's made a career out of writing about the political influence of professional sports here in the United States. I spoke with Dave about his new documentary produced by the Media Education Foundation. It's a great movie. It's called Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL, which details how the NFL, a multi-billion dollar empire has become one of the most powerful political weapons in America. You may not be a sports fan, but if you care at all about politics, then you need to understand just how powerful professional football is in shaping everything from race relations to military policy.
1: Specialty. I gotta get ready. Make everything right.
3: Monday night football's coming on tonight. What's up, Dave? How you doing? Hey, it's great to be here. Not the first time we've spoken, but it's been too long. Your doc makes it seem
0: like you're super psyched about the start of NFL season. Uh I I mean watching it really got me psyched for football season. I I I joke. I joke. Uh yes,
3: yes. Uh (laughs) conflicted feelings for sure. I mean, (laughs) the NFL was a big part of my life growing up. Uh, It was a huge glue to my family in terms of let's get together on Sundays. I feel like you and I were on the
0: opposite sides. I was an Eagles fan. You were a Giants fan, I
3: presume, or were you a Jets fan? Tragically, I was raised a Jets fan. Oh, my God. That's pathetic. I mean, that's – Yeah. I mean, worst (laughs) years of my life. But uh, (laughs) currently, uh, I live in the Maryland area. So through my wife, I've been drafted into being a Baltimore Ravens fan, which is a little more – All right. So listen,
0: the thesis of of your doc, or at least the thesis question, begins with the question, is football political? You make it very clear in the film that you do think uh, football, specifically the NFL, is a political organization. I definitely agree. Uh, And the rest of the documentary explores that idea. I'm curious, just to start this discussion, what made you want to make this documentary
3: with – that focus at this
0: particular moment in
3: time? Well, I read something that said the top 100 television programs in 2021, of them, 85 were NFL games. And of the remaining 15, there were no other sports. And that just occurred to me, like, you know, we talk about sports almost like it's on an equal playing field, like NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball. But the reality is quite different. I mean, over the last generation, you've seen all of these major sports, as I talk about in the film, see their ratings get splintered. That doesn't mean they're less profitable because, oh my gosh, streaming services, networks, they all love sports because it's like the last thing people will sit through commercials to actually watch. But the NFL is so hegemonic in this world and stands astride the entire sporting universe. So if you're someone like me, Who writes about the intersection of sports and politics, I just thought to myself, okay, we need to do a deep dive into the NFL. And the other thing that really clicked with me that made me want to do this is that I was really worn out on this idea that people like Colin Kaepernick, people like Michael Bennett, were introducing politics into the National Football League. And that became the discourse. <laughs> Look at all these I'm, I'm, la- I'm laughing, I'm laughing not be- at Colin
0: Kaepernick, but I'm laughing, I think, along with you, with the idea that, oh, only now that there's Kaepernick mm. and Bennett and the like, only now is the NFL, uh, quote unquote,
3: politicized. I mean, what a joke, right? Absolutely, and they're bringing these ideas in as if uh, the Kaepernicks and the Michael Bennetts are sort of like the turd in the punch bowl. Like, right. we are having so much fun You know, NFL is family and all the rest of it. And then these political athletes had to go ruin the party. (laughs) And I feel like that definitely left out a pretty salient fact. And that's that the NFL has been a political organization since day one. And the issue at the end of the day is that the NFL says sports and politics don't mix when the reality is that it's sports and a certain kind of politics that aren't allowed to mix in the confines of the National Football League. I think that is such a key point. I mean,
0: that is such a key point. We're going to get into exactly what that means. Um, And I'm glad that we started off with this discussion mentioning Kaepernick, because I think when people think uh, NFL and politics, a lot of people think that, that we're just talking about Kaepernick. But you go way deeper on that. And before we get into some specifics of that, I just want to also preface this discussion by asking you, First and foremost, what do you think it is about football that has positioned itself as almost synonymous with Americana? What do you think it is about football that has made it such a towering giant above all other sports when it comes to being uh, central in
3: the American psyche? Yeah, great question. Because if we go beyond the confines of the United States, uh, you don't see NFL football as a popular medium, as a popular entertainment. So how is something so popular in this country and how is it that the United States has been so successful over generations of exporting its cultural products all over the world from film to music to sports, and yet here's this one sport so stubbornly huge in the united states yet so unable to make it across the pond on either side and be successful anywhere else i mean it's fascinating when when you think about it in that regard i mean the, the degree to which we have been able to import our culture has been probably the most successful american export in history uh just culture and yet not this sport so why is it so successful in the United States. I mean, a a lot of reasons for this, but first and foremost, I think it's because America, because of its history of uh, settler colonialism and settling the West and all the rest of it, has this preoccupation with what it means to be a real man and manhood in a way that you don't necessarily see in other countries. And I think that has everything to do with the history of Western expansion, that it just kept graduating over the generations to, are you man enough to hold the land? Whether it's against Native Americans, whether it's against escaped enslaved people, whether it's against, you know, the Russian hordes who, you know, Red Dawn style are just waiting to parachute in and take over our elementary schools. Uh, although that wasn't the Russians. I think that was the, the Chinese, I believe. Red <laughs> in Dawn. The, or, you know, it was in, in the newest one, it was the North
0: Koreans. Yeah, right. Yeah.
3: I don't remember. I don't know. But, but, but it, it's that, it's that idea that, that it takes a certain kind of manhood you know, like impervious to pain or at least willing to suffer pain and willing to inflict pain upon others, that's going to save a country that's just bathed in a degree of original sin. And that's how we keep our heads above water. And in the, once you settled all the land though, where is that uh, sense of manhood really supposed to come from? Where is it supposed to be? So this preoccupation with manhood, so interestingly, it starts in the ruling classes of the United States. That's where football begins, which I think will surprise some people because it's become very gladiatorial where the players are drawn, uh, largely players who are, who are black, uh, are drawn from some of the poorest areas in the United States uh, for, enterta- for the purpose of entertaining the masses. Yet when football starts, it's Yale, it's Harvard, it's Princeton. And people were dying on the field on a regular basis because they hadn't quite figured out the rules yet. I mean, imagine that today if, say, a dozen kids from Harvard died during a football season.
0: When I saw that in your doc, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like hard to believe that it's a regular headline of like, you know, kids die playing football. And then Teddy Roosevelt uh, being worried that the uh, that the football is going to be uh, too feminized, uh, if uh, I'm putting that in quote feminized, you know, it's going to be become uh, too too weak if anybody tries to essentially stop the <laughs> stop the literal death of people on on the field. It's incredible.
3: Yeah, and that's Teddy Roosevelt plays a critical role. People don't know this in the formation of the NCAA because Teddy Roosevelt felt like the only way we're going to save football, which he saw as absolutely essential to preserving American manhood was to codify some rules and have some forms of protection so they can keep having this game at the Ivy League schools, at the upper echelons, at Army, for example, at the Native American uh, uh, forced boarding schools uh, that occurred, that existed. You know, football was seen as a way through violence to birth people into a kind of Americana and a kind of leadership that was essential, Teddy Roosevelt thought for enacting this idea of the 20th century being the American century. And for other, this was obvious at the time because people were saying this quite explicitly, uh, this sport is to make the 20th century the American century because it will make us tough enough to do it. So that's not exactly an open hand to say, I don't know, Japan to say you should love this game too. You know what I'm saying? So it it, it was so rooted in this idea of Americana and so I'm um, so rooted in this idea, the very game itself, in in I refer to it as an adolescence idea of what war is. You know, very exciting. You gain six inches at a time or you lose six inches at a time. You know, it, it's it's all about the mindset of 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 rapid fire violence, you know, and that's, I think, an adolescent idea of what war is instead of when you talk to people, it's periods of extended boredom followed by periods of extended terror, which is not exactly what football is, but that's why the army and the, excuse me, the armed forces have always been so attracted to football as a point of recruitment because it's saying, Hey, if you're attracted to this, then boy, do we have a a job for you? Well, and you, you, expertly document the martial language
0: around football. Uh, It's it's kind of incredible. Listen to this clip from the documentary uh, where George Carlin is sort of making fun of this. This is the comedian George Carlin.
2: In football, the object is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack, which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line.
3: I'll ask you a quick question, David, because y- you and I have a very similar kind of like uh, cultural background upbringing. Did you grow up listening to like beat up George Carlin tapes Oh yeah. yeah. In, oh yeah. Absolutely. Like At summer camp oh, for over sure. Over, <laughs> over him and and
0: and to be frank, uh uh Andrew Dice Clay. It was George Carlin and Andrew Dice Clay, which I know Andrew Dice Clay is not not exactly uh he he wouldn't be the one that I would want my kid listening to. I I'd, I'd more want my kid my kid today listening to George Carlin. Uh but I think Carlin completely nails it there and what it, what it kind of brings up to me in watching your documentary about both the Masculine, The hyper-masculinity or particular version of masculinity that football promotes and the martial language. It reminds me of that concept that Tom Wolfe, the author uh, uh, of The Right Stuff, uh, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, talked about the single combat warrior. The single combat warrior, not to get too far afield here, used to be this idea that two armies would line up and instead of uh, the armies fighting each other, they would have sort of one or two of their best fighters go fight one or two of the other side's best fighters. It's sort of war in miniature. The idea is instead of having a massacre of everybody massacring each other, the, the sort of societies would root for their single combat warriors. And I feel like Football, especially the NFL, has become kind of a a modern version of the single combat warriors. We every major city has their single combat warriors that goes and fights the other city, and and, and that's and look to be clear that's better than war, right? That's that's better than than straight up violence between different uh, cities or states and the like. So I guess the fir- the question I want to start going into here is the hyper masculinity the martial nature of um football and we'll get more into into more detail about the specific relationship between the military and the nfl but i guess the top line question is well okay let's stipulate that all that's true Uh, as people are watching football right now this is the first week of, of the football season what's so bad about that like what's why is that a problem
3: well first of all let me just say that uh You nailed it with Tom Wolfe. I mean, Bonfire of the Vanities is basically about how Sherman McCoy, at the end of the book, delivers himself into being a better person, a real man, through the act of one-on-one physical violence instead of being this rich schmuck living on Park Avenue. Like, goes from a schmuck to somebody you should actually, They want that Wolfe wants the reader to admire Mm -hmm. because he puts up his fists and very interestingly punches out uh, a black protest leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's trying to mm-hmm. railroad right. him. So there's Tom Wolfe in a nutshell. Um, I think what what's the problematic part of all the martial nature um, of football is that it does more than just make people feel a kind of identification with the armed forces. It makes people feel an identification with war. And this country has been in a permanent state of war uh, since September 11th, 2001. And football played a role in back then, as I talk about in the film, in really laying down the field and saying, this is going to be the new reality of this country and we all need to get behind it. And I given the incredible social cost of war, given the incredible social cost of billions and billions of dollars that uh, come completely wasted through the military industrial complex, if people have a problem with that, and I think a lot of people do have a problem with that that love NFL football, then we need to be able to make the critique that the NFL lays the groundwork for a lot of this as this incredibly strong cultural product with direct ties to the US military. It makes people excited about the idea of combat. It makes people excited about the idea of victory. It makes people excited about this idea of the red, white, and blue. And that's, I think, why when Colin Kaepernick took that knee, the entire NFL world just completely lost their shit. It was a lot more than, oh, he's disrespecting the anthem. And it was also, I think, a lot more than, oh, he's he's criticizing the police and we can't have any criticism of the police in our society. Um, it was also that he was directly challenging this idea of forced Americana. Like to take a knee during the anthem is to say that there's a gap between this what this country promises and what it delivers and to do that in the context of this patriotic spectacle i mean that's like pulling the string on the sweater of the entire nfl business model and i think that led to the big freak out as much as anything else well
0: let's talk about the specific relationship between the nfl and the military because i think some people may hear this and say well listen you know Sports commentators using martial language to describe, you know, the field generals and, you know, going down, you know, the two sides. That, that's one thing. And, and the violence of the game itself is sort of inherent to it. And, and, and that's not, I'm making the devil's advocate argument here. That's, that's not really the NFL's fault, right? It's just, that's just part of the game. But what you document is actually a very specific relationship between the NFL as an entity, we're not just talking about the sport of football, we're talking about the NFL as a multi-billion dollar entity, its relationship, a very deliberate relationship with The Pentagon. So beyond the abstract, the, you know, football promotes sort of violence and martial, sort of martial uh, uh, triumphalism, that there's an actual specific economic uh, and, and cultural relationship between the NFL and the Department of Defense. Just talk a
3: little bit about that, what you think people don't know and need to know. Sure. I mean, first of all, I think people need to know that this relationship between uh, the U.S. military and the National Football League goes back decades upon decades. And it was critical uh, for the implementation culturally and the justifications for the Vietnam War. And we talk about this in the film. There was even a player, Dave Megacy who quit the NFL precisely because he felt like it pushed people towards acceptance of the war in Vietnam in in a way that he found to be completely immoral. So that's And I just think- want
0: to pa- pause right there and, and just... To over- overlay this with the context of what we started with, the idea of the NFL is an apolitical organization. Colin Kaepernick only recently politicized the NFL. This history that you tell about the Pentagon's relationship with the NFL, this is proof to my mind that the NFL has always been A Mm -hmm. very political weapon. For instance, in this case, on behalf of the political messages of uh, pro-war, kind of pro-militarism messages that, granted, we as a culture oftentimes don't think of as quote-unquote political, but are highly political. So how did it go from, from the Vietnam War into the modern day? How did that relationship flourish?
3: Well, it flourished particularly during the 1970s and 1980s when the United States was still suffering from the Vietnam syndrome and being in the military was seen not as a badge of honor, but a badge of uh, being a tool of empire. I mean, we went a long time without an active war in this country. During that period though, you see the US military using the NFL as a point of recruitment during a time when recruitment numbers were very low. So there's a financial relationship uh, dating back to Vietnam with this idea of of the armed forces, the military industrial complex, thinking about their recruiting numbers and seeing the nfl as a vehicle to make them better in 1991 that's when you really see the us get over the vietnam syndrome i'm sure people who listen to your pot are familiar with the history of the gulf war now how is the gulf war really signaled into this country about how we were supposed to get behind it and how we were supposed to see it and view it culturally well that's the 1991 super bowl you know that's whitney houston that's the most famous singing of the national anthem in history with warplanes flying overhead as I show with a halftime show that was centered around the children of soldiers who were overseas. A message from George H.W. and Barbara Bush, uh, this whole idea that we needed a united country for the purposes of, the, of military violence in the Gulf. And at that point, I mean, it was almost like Pandora's box was, was opened. And it, it was hyped up to a, a huge degree throughout the '90s. This military connection—I mean, it was seen as happenstance. It was seen as, of course, patriotism, militarism. That's just a part of NFL football. So it, it was like a almost like a mission creep throughout the '90s, or if you will, the, uh, the the little animal that's you know boiling in the water, you know, whatever, you know, you know, when they just turn up the, the heat slowly and it slowly dies and doesn't realize it's being burned to death. When 9-11 happens, the flame goes up, and this country doesn't care if anybody feels like they're being burned. They were like, we're, we're going all the way with this. Uh, we're in a state of permanent war. People remember Dick Cheney's words about listing the number of countries the U.S. was going to have to invade and occupy. That's what they're trying to get everybody's head around at that point. And that's when the National Football League saw that it could actually profit more from its relationship with the Pentagon by doing these things that a lot of people think the NFL does out of the goodness of their heart, like these events they call salute to service. I'm sure people have seen the things where they bring the soldier home to meet the family on the, his family or her family on the 50 yard line, uh, in the middle at the halftime of a game and everybody cheers and the family doesn't even know that their loved one is coming home. I mean, they, they turn it up to 11 to wring emotions out of you for the military. And then it was found out, you know, through an investigation that was really led by the offices of the late uh, John McCain, that the United States uh, military, even though we have a homeless vet problem in this country, was paying millions of dollars to the National Football League. What was so wild about that is when I first read that story. This is
0: an incredible story. I mean, this is an incredible part of your documentary.
3: I thought I had it backwards, though. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, of course the NFL would pay the armed forces to do these things because it makes the NFL look great to be associated with this. That's not surprising that the NFL pays them. And then I was like, wait a minute, what, 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 what? The military is paying the NFL? Right, the military is paying billionaire owners. Billionaire owners, millions more dollars for the purposes, really. So you have to ask yourself then, well, why is the Pentagon choosing to pay this amount of money? you know even though they surely must have been somewhere in in that offices in the offices who said wow if this is found out publicly this is probably a bad look for us they that either didn't occur to them or they it occurred to them and they said you know what it's worth it so why did they think it was worth it that has everything to do with recruitment numbers in the post 911 era because if you remember they actually were going down after 911 then people have this idea of everybody signing up to fight That's actually not what took place in this because everyone was like, whoa, you know, they're talking about sending me there to Fallujah to get blown up by an IED uh, for the purposes of what oil? No, thank you. And so the the NFL then becomes an important lever, pardon the expression or lever for, (laughs) for the for the Pentagon to be able to reach a new and younger audience. Now, part of what the Pentagon was paying for was something that we hadn't seen before. Uh, other than Super Bowls, and that's the players coming out for the anthem as well. It used to be the players would be in the locker room unless you had a particular hard-ass coach who wanted everybody to come out to the sidelines, but but there was no rule about coming out. There was no culture that said everybody has to come out. That changed, and it didn't change right after 9-11. It changed in 2008 uh, because of this deal. That they had with the pentagon you know it wasn't just randomly oh 2008's a great year no that's when they got the ink on the contract the billionaires were going to get millions more and part of that was getting the players out as props and i think it, it it's a, a correct argument that without the 9 11 political hysteria and players coming out for the ant being forced to come out for the anthem you don't have colin kaepernick taking in knee. not just because He was forced to be out there anyway, but because he and a lot of players that I've spoken to saw it as a nakedly political uh, show. And a lot of them thought, well, if this is going to be a political show anyway, where we're supposed to show our deepest respect for the United States, when the United States does not act in the interests of my community, then I'm going to use this space to say something. There was a logic to it by a lot of players that this is the space where we're going to be heard. So there's a through line uh,
0: throughout your documentary about the NFL at one, in one set of ways, being a highly political weapon. And in another set of ways, crushing dissent or just basic political speech of uh, of those uh, whose speech it doesn't want across so many different issues. We were just talking about uh, the military, the Pentagon uh, military relationship, the Pen- uh, excuse me, the Pentagon NFL relationship and how the NFL is used to promote militarism, uh, to conflate patriotism with militarism. Uh, the situation around uh, Pat Tillman uh, and and how that was uh, that's the death of Pat Tillman, uh, how that was essentially covered up or at least pushed to the side and Tillman's views on war were pushed to the side. Uh, there's Kaepernick, who was uh, th- essentially thrown out of a job uh, and then collusion to not allow him to, to to get a job because of his protest. There was Dave Megacy. There was the, uh, the CTE uh, uh, brain damage situation where uh, players were trying to speak out uh, about uh, the physical consequences on their brains of the game and how unsafe the game had been and the NFL uh, not acknowledging it. So across all of these different issues that you go over in in the in the documentary, the NFL is is both being a political weapon and trying to shut down uh those who are speaking out even among its own players. I guess my question is where do you think we are in all of that? Because the documentary towards the end, there's a slightly hopeful note. The, those who have spoken out, even as they've gotten kind of crushed down, they have moved the needle some. So where are we now when it comes to the NFL at once being a political weapon and also trying to shut down anybody who's pushing forward a message they don't want to hear?
3: Well, we're at a very interesting pivot point, which is why I'm glad the doc is coming out right now. Because on the one hand, the wine is out of the bottle. Pandora's box is open. Athletes realize on a mass scale that they have a platform and that they can use it. And if you're a 22-year-old athlete, keep this in mind. You're 16 when Colin Kaepernick took that knee. It's already been six years. So you grew up in high school seeing Colin Kaepernick as a hero, as someone who sacrificed for you. So as, as much as the NFL has tried to use Colin Kaepernick as a ghost story, to scare young players from speaking out. This is a very difficult situation for the NFL. The NFL has realized that they have a politicized uh, player core of black players who are tired of taking shit. And when you have an ownership set that is entirely white and you have a player set that's 70% black, and when you have a three and a half year average career, I mean, that's a recipe for players starting to try to understand power, race, capitalism in a way previous generations of players uh, did not. And one of the reasons why previous generations of players did not on this mass scale, one reason is the backlash against Kaepernick and the other players in 2016, 2017. One reason is the way Trump so relentlessly attacked NFL players. But one reason, too, are the protests after the police murder of George Floyd in 2020 which had a politicizing effect all across U.S. society, as it should have. I mean, there were the largest set of demonstrations in the history of the United States. They hit all 50 states. And that's when the players made their own sort of commercial, if you will, their own public uh, service announcement, where the best players in the game, people like Patrick Mahomes of Kansas City, uh, said that the NFL had simply not done enough to address the issues that were important to their players. So now Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the league, who, you know, to quote Tom Wolf again, if this is a Tom Wolf original phrase, he's a total flat catcher. Yeah. That's his job is to be a flat catcher. And that means he's got to take everybody's shit and act as a human meat shield in front of, uh, the 30, 31 billionaires behind him. Um, and, These 31 billionaires, they give to right-wingers at at a nine-to-one margin. Uh, And Roger Goodell is there to say, well, wait a minute. Actually, the NFL is not just this engine of reactionary politics. The NFL is family. The NFL is for everybody. We're making it safer. Uh, The players love it here. And yet at the same time, now you have the best players who can't be uh, colluded against. Like You're not going to collude against Patrick Mahomes, are saying – You haven't done a good enough job. And Roger Goodell had to actually get up there and say, yeah, uh, Black Lives Matter. He had to put end racism in the end zone. But now we're in this interesting period of backlash. I mean, we see it, of course, the critical race theory and everything that the right wing is trying to gin up, which they're completely doing because it's the aftermath of the 2020 protests. This is their backlash. And it's interesting that at this point, you're now seeing the end racism taken off. Uh, the end zone, they're dialing back the political messages. They're trying to be to react to what they think the political tea leaves are. Yet they're playing a very dangerous game because these politicized players haven't gone anywhere. There are now social justice committees that are very controlled by the NFL, but at least it's an outlet for players to try to express their politics in a way the previous generation of players weren't even considering. And so I think. What we're looking at right now is a period of sort of rumbling quietude, but you're also going to see these players step up uh, when the situation demands it. One last quick question for you. There will be people who are
0: hearing this who may say, um, I'm not into sports. I don't care about sports. I'm into politics. There will be other people who will be listening to this who will say, I'm into sports and I just want the athletes to shut up and play. So I would want you to respond to both of those, Uh, the people who say, I'm only into politics. I don't care about sports. Why does this matter? And the folks who would say,
3: I just want the athletes to shut up and play. I don't care about any of this. I mean, first and foremost, uh, a person that I I believe you're somewhat familiar, David, a guy by the name of Ralph Nader uh, has this this amazing quote that I've used a million times where he says, you better turn on the politics or politics are going to turn on you. And it's so apt. And now you look at the NFL and how politicized it is. I would say to the people who are political and hate sports, you better turn on and understand the National Football League or the politics of the National Football League are going to turn on you. It is so powerful a cultural force that if you care about politics, you should care about the messages that are pumped through the play. That's the And so if you're a political person, you actually have a political deficit if you don't understand the politics of the NFL. It's that powerful. Second thing, the people who want the athletes to just shut up and play need to understand that when you say that, you're actually denying the humanity of the athletes. You know, these are human beings. They're not just robots for our entertainment. And if they're good enough to watch play, then you should be willing to hear what they have to say when the uniform is off. Otherwise, what you are is just a passive participant and gladiatorialism because you're just denying the humanity of the people you watch. The other thing I would say to the people who just want them to shut up and play is please keep in mind that not everybody is going to be shutting up, namely the people in the owner's box. They are gonna keep talking through their money and they're gonna keep talking through the institutions that they support. So what you're also saying is that you wanna shut up the voices of people who come from poor backgrounds who are disproportionately uh, black and brown while allowing the people in the owner's boxes to have free reign. So as long as they are going to use the NFL as basically political money laundering, particularly when they get public money for stadiums, then you also got to care about what the players say as a voice of resistance.
0: Dave Zirin is the sports editor of The Nation. His new documentary is called Behind the Shield, The Power and Politics of the NFL. Uh, You can find him uh, online on Twitter. Dave, what's your Twitter handle, just so people
1: know?
3: Yeah, it's at edge of sports, and you follow at edge of sports, I'm going to be putting out trailers, I'm going to be putting out websites, it's going to be very easy to access the film. Dave Zirin, thank you so much for all of your work uh, on all of the
0: things you cover at the intersection of sports and politics, and thank you for making this documentary, I, I truly, I was blown away by this, and I'm so happy that you made it. Congratulations, and
3: we're hopeful that it gets a huge audience. And thank you. And thank you, David, for helping convince my in laws to look up. (laughs) Thanks, man. I appreciate it.
0: That's it for today's show. As a reminder, our paid subscribers who get Levertime Premium get to hear our bonus segment, my conversation with former Jeremy Corbyn spokesman James Schneider about the death of Queen Elizabeth and what it means for the future of the English monarchy, a monarchy that seems somewhat ridiculous, but is also kind of scary.
2: As long as there's no mass opposition to that, which they've stage managed it quite effectively from their point of view, you know, practically for a person in the UK, it it doesn't practically alter anything. Will your bills still rise astronomically? Yes. Will your pay still fall in real terms? Yes.
0: And please be sure to like, subscribe and write a review for Levertime on your favorite podcast app. One last favor to ask. If you like this podcast and our reporting... Please tell your friends and family about The Lever and the work we're doing here. Forward our emails to them. Encourage them to subscribe. The only way independent media grows is by word of mouth. So we need all the help we can get to continue doing the work that we're doing. Until next time, I'm David Sirota. Keep rocking the boat.